Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Hugo Nuts, where we review and discuss with you the best sci-fi novels of all time. Uh, this week, we're doing a little bit of a departure episode. We are ranking the Nebula nominees for the year 2023, um, seeing what you know we like and what we think you all should read. Uh, the Nebula Awards is a ceremony voted on by the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. That's uh, one of the two to four biggest award ceremonies of the year for science fiction and fantasy novels. So uh, let's hear it, Brent. Let's start with uh, number six. For sure. Yeah, excited about this. Some really good stuff. Uh, okay, coming in number six, but also kind of we're not going to give it a rank at all. We'll talk about that. Known to the Ninth by Tamsin Muir. It's both, this is a book that's both fantasy and science fiction. There's interstellar travel, but also lots of death magic. And uh, it's the third book in the Locked Tomb series. Here's the deal. Her city is under siege. The zombies are coming back. And all Nona wants is a birthday party. In many ways, Nona is like other people. She lives with her family, has a job at her local school, and loves walks on the beach and meeting new dogs, especially Noodle. But Nona's not like other people. Six months ago, she woke up in a stranger's body, and she's afraid she might have to give it back. This, meanwhile, the whole city is falling to pieces. A monstrous blue sphere hangs on the horizon, ready to tear the planet apart. Blood of Eden forces have surrounded the last cohort facility and wait for the Emperor Undying to come calling. Their leaders want Nona to be the weapon that will save them from the Nine Houses. Nona would prefer to live an ordinary life with the people she loves, with Pyrrha and Camilla and Palamides, but she also knows that nothing lasts forever. And each night, Nona dreams of a woman with a skull-painted face. Now, let me say, if that summary didn't make a lot of sense, uh, that is because you absolutely cannot read this book as a standalone. You must read it as, you, you have to read the whole series for this book to make any sense. Full disclaimer, we did not. We just read all the books that were nominated, and I you know, have not read uh, Gideon the Ninth, the, the first book in the series. Um, so we're almost like not going to give this book a ranking. You just, you cannot it's fully not even comprehensible if you haven't read the other books in the series. That said, the writing is extremely fun. It's funny without it being like a joke book, um, which is rare and fun. Uh, and um, and it makes the dark world feel not so scary. So, yeah, that's kind of the gist with None of the Ninth. So maybe we pitch it as a reverse. If, if you liked Gideon the Ninth, uh, let us know and we'll read that <laughs> so we can we can back into it. <laughs> yep. Uh, yeah. What do you think? Who, who would love this book? Um, if you loved the Lock Tomb series and you want to keep reading it, um, I think I might go back and start from the beginning and see, see where it, see where it ends up. Um, but you're right. It's, uh, it's tough when it's a solo book, uh, in a series that is not the first one that is nominated and, uh, you're, you're kind of, you're jumping into the deep end with no floaties. Yeah, it's it's a lot harder for exactly this reason. I think it's a lot harder to win these awards when you're part of a series and it's not the first book, um, which makes sense. It's for the best novel, not the best series. That's a whole award. Um, so that said, you will not True. love it if you haven't read the rest of the series. If you're excited about the idea of zombies and death magic and some interstellar travel, go read the series from the beginning. All right, and coming in at a real number, number five is Nettle and Bone by T. Kingfisher. Um, the summary of which is as follows. After years of seeing her sisters suffer at the hands of an abusive prince, Mara, the shy convent-raised third-born daughter, has finally realized that no one is coming to their rescue. No one except Mara herself. Seeking help from a powerful dustwife who can communicate with the dead, Mara is offered the tools to kill a prince. 
if she can complete three impossible tasks. But, as is the way in Tales of Princes, Witches and Daughters, the impossible is only the beginning. On her quest, Mara is joined by the Dust Wife, a reluctant fairy godmother, a strapping former knight, and a chicken possessed by a demon. Together, the five of them intend to, to be the hand that closes around the throat of the prince and frees Mara's family and their kingdom from its tyrannous ruler at last. It is, this one I felt like was like a super straightforward fantasy novel. Um, that said, the fun thing about it is the like character dynamics. The dust wife and the fairy godmother, Agnes, are both like old ladies. And one of them is like a crotchety old lady and the other one's like a matronly style godmother, you know, grandmother. And their like banter is really fun. <laughs> and then also the demon chicken is, the comedy of relief works. It's just like, ing at like, appropriate moments throughout the novel. It's like got great macaw timing. Um, yeah, it's chickens are funny. I mean, it, like remembering the, the Aqua Teen Hunger Force Arise Chicken episodes. Uh, <laughs> Deep cut. I love that. <laughs> um, yeah, I think so. You'll you'll love this if you just want a quick, fun, traditional story about, you know, fighting for what's right, where the girl gets the guy and all ends well. It's just, you know, it's going to be like just a nice smooth on the palate. Nothing too complicated. Yeah. And and like a lot of these, um, the you won't love is kind of the opposite of the you will love, which is um, if you're looking for any surprises, you know, novelty of plot um, or uh, big thoughts, thought experiments, um, this is maybe not it for you. This is more of a fun, a fun read um, with with good humor and a nice clippy plot. Yep. Number four is Spear by Nicola Griffith, which is uh, another fantasy book. And this one is about a girl who knows she has a destiny before she even knows her name. She grows up in the wild in a cave with her mother, but visions of a faraway lake come to her on the spring breeze. And when she hears a traveler speak of Artas, king of Caerleon, she knows that her future lies at his court. And so, brimming with magic and eager to test her strength, she breaks her covenant with her mother and, with a broken hunting spear and mended armor, rides on a bony gelding to Caerleon. On her adventures, she meets other great knights and steals the hearts of beautiful women. She'll fight warriors and sorcerers, and she will find her love and the lake and her fate. So... I'm loving books. I'm loving books that are about, like, reimagining old stories and old mythologies with new characters and from new perspectives, right? You got like um Circe and Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller is great examples. I like Circe way more than Song of Achilles, but that's a different story. <laughs> um but this is a fun uh kind of new trope. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, so this is a King Arthur story but with a woman pretending to be a man who is attracted to women and Artos is like also into some, you know, King Arthur is not what you're necessarily strictly expecting. Um, the other thing I would say about this is like the beginning of this book is like one of the best beginnings of a fantasy book I've ever read. It's all show, no tell. Like at the beginning, you know, the reason we know she's big and strong is because she finds this man's armor and it's too small for her. The way we start to see maybe she's magic is that she's, you know, she's like smelling and, and, uh, sort of catching these sense of memories in faraway places. And for a while, it's not clear if she's just like kind of strange and has a strange way of describing the world or like 
oh, is she actually has some magic. She just doesn't know how to use it yet. Um, the last thing I'd say about it is it really feels like Neil Gaiman. Um, it's his same short, clear, evocative tone, really short sentences, uh, twist on a myth that we all know. And if you're listening to the audiobook, it's read by the author, which Neil Gaiman also does. So just it felt very Neil Gaiman-esque to me. Yeah, we, you'll love it if, as you just said, um, you like that type of storytelling, the Neil Gaiman style, um, and you're and you're interested in mythology, particularly here, obviously, King Arthur um, stories, the Knights of the Round Table uh, universe or mythos, as it <laughs> used to that. be known. <laughs> the King Arthur <laughs> universe, uh, cinematic universe. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you like story, you know, you like that Mulan twist. Uh, and it's just a fun, fast read. Yeah. For sure. Um, I think you won't love it if you are looking for something that feels totally new. You know, this is definitely, this is a story we all know with changes to it made that also are like historically not common, but we've had a lot of books like this. It's like retell the story with some like, like, you know, queering and gender swapping and that kind of like interesting layer. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a well done version, but it doesn't feel like something like totally fresh. So if you're looking for that, like big new idea, this might not be it. Number three is Legends and Lattes by Travis Baldry, um, which is another fantasy novel. Um, and it is about, after a lifetime of bounties and bloodshed, Viv is hanging up her sword for the last time. The battle-weary orc aims to start fresh, opening their first ever coffee shop in the city of Thune. But old and new rivals stand in the way of success. Not to mention the fact that no one has the faintest idea what coffee actually is. If Viv wants to put the blade behind her and make her plans reality, she won't be able to go it alone. But the true rewards of the uncharted path are the travelers you meet along the way. And whether drawn together by ancient magic, flaky pastry, or freshly brewed cup, they may become partners, family, and something deeper than she could have ever dreamed. So here we have a, uh, if we're talking universes, a Dungeons and Dragons universe yeah. uh, novel. And uh, another recent trope that I also enjoy, um, which is the kind of like the feel good, um, more mundane uh, science fiction fantasy, something that's set in a different universe, but it, the stakes aren't crazy high and it's it, it's more like true to life. Yeah. Yeah. And it worked really well. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest here. I like went into this book very prepared to dislike it just because of the name. I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm going to read Legends and Lattes. Like, but it's so good. Like I, that's a testament to how good this book is that I came in with like stink face on. And by the time it was over, I was like, wow, that was so fun. It's just, it's so cute. It's a great premise. Building a coffee shop in a and d city is just fun. It's just a fun thing to do. And there's like the hobgoblin carpenter and the ratkin baker who makes the great cinnamon rolls and the succubus who's trying like not to use her sexy powers. She just wants to be like her authentic self. It just all works. It's really cute and great. And you'll love it if you want, as we said, an uplifting, like fun, character driven novel um, with interesting kind of newer, quirky, fun conflict. Um, and you're definitely going to love it if you're a Becky Chambers fan. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, the Becky Chambers fans have got to read this one. Um, that said, the other side of that coin is uh, you're not likely to like this book if you're looking for a lot of action or like high stakes conflict. That's not the deal. This is about opening the coffee shop and trying to make the coffee shop work. That's the story. So um, why don't you tell us about number two then? Okay, here we go. So number two is Babel by R.F. Kuang. Um, this is more fantasy than sci-fi. 
and it's set in 1828. Robin Swift, orphaned by the cholera in Canton, is brought to London by the mysterious Professor Lavelle. There, he trains for years in Latin, ancient Greek, and Chinese, all in preparation for the day that he'll enroll in Oxford University's prestigious Royal Institute of Translation, also known as Babel. The Tower and its students are the world's center for translation, and, more importantly, magic. Silverworking, the art of manifesting the meaning lost in translation using enchanted silver bars, has made the British unparalleled in power as the archine craft serves the empire's quest for colonization. For Robin, Oxford is a utopia dedicated to the pursuit of knowledge. But knowledge obeys power, and as a Chinese boy raised in Britain, Robin realizes serving Babel means betraying his motherland. As his studies progress, Robin finds himself caught between Babel and the shadowy Hermes Society, an organization dedicated to stopping imperial expansion. When Britain pursues an unjust war in China over silver and opium, Robin must decide. Yes, he must. Um, and this this comes in at number two because it is um, uh, kind of it's a powerful, thought provoking novel. I would almost describe it as more um, like an alternate history than um, maybe like a full fantasy. Um, it's definitely not science fiction, but it, essentially the silver bars um, with words inscribed in them replace uh, the idea of fossil fuels um, and, and other forms of energy resource and industry in the industrial era, in our, in our real world industrial era. So it's kind of just... Uh, a new resource, um, and it, it more reads like an alternate history. Uh, it, it's a very powerful story about um, anti-colonialism told from the perspective of characters who really want to fit into this system and gain access to the knowledge um, for the knowledge's sake that that empire has, that, that um, colonialism has created, but who aren't ever invited in, even though they're needed, they're needed for... Um, their skills uh, desperately, they're not invited into the, the inner circle. They're, they're still foreigners from the colonies. Uh, and it, it, I've never read anything quite as um, thought-provoking about that perspective, um, mm. what, what it would be like to be an outsider who wants to be part of something who's not allowed in and having to make decisions about um, what, what to do with that. Uh, without spoiling too much. Um, it's also a really fascinating exploration into language. Um, the language is uh, what, you know, the Translation Institute of Babel um, is inscribing language on the silver bars to make things around the world work. Um, so it's a it's a integral function of the story. But every time there's a word used um, for its power, there's, there's annotations about its etymology. You know, is it Latin-based. Why did we use the Latin word versus um, its French, its later French derivative? Um, why did we use that in combination with a uh, Chinese character? Um, and and the etymologies of those words and the subtleties of the connotations of each word culturally and linguistically. Um, so anyone who's fascinated with language will love this and a super emotional um, look into, uh, you know, colonizer, colonized, um, oppression and, uh, violence as a language as well. That violence is possibly the only answer, the only language that an oppressor might understand. Um, 
So we loved this book. Oh, and the characters are fantastic, which of course, if it's going to be just emotional. Just casual aside, characters are fantastic. <laughs> yeah, just casually great characters. Um, <laughs> so you're going to love this book if you are interested in language and etymology and uh, semiotics, and you're also going to love it if you're interested in a powerful story about um, those who are struggling to fit into a power structure that really needs them but doesn't respect them. For sure. The other side of that coin, you are not likely to like this book. If you don't like like the Victorian era or you aren't into steampunk, they aren't using steam, but it's like an alternative way of making steampunk, basically. Um, or if you're a sci-fi purist who really enjoys like technology, the future, it's just not that. Um, so if that's what you're looking for, this ain't it. Yes, and as you may have noticed, uh, a lot of these are fantasy novels or alt histories, you know, different types of spec fiction. Um, so our number one is, um, you know, maybe we're biased, but we finally have a sci-fi and it's a great one. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so number one on our list of the, you know, Nebula nominees from 2022 is The Mountain in the Sea by Ray Naylor. So rumors have begun to spread of a species of hyper-intelligent, dangerous octopus that may have developed its own language and culture. Marine biologist Dr. Han Nguyen, who spent her life researching cephalopod intelligence, will do anything for the chance to study them. The transnational tech corporation Dianima, however, has sealed the remote Kondao archipelago where the octopuses were discovered. Dr. Nguyen joins Dianima's team on the islands, a battle-scarred security agent and the world's first android, to try and get closer. The octopuses hold the key to unprecedented breakthroughs in extra-human intelligence. The stakes are high, there are vast fortunes to be made by whoever can take advantage of the octopus's advancements, and as Dr. Nguyen struggles to communicate with the newly discovered species, forces larger than Dianima close in to seize the octopuses for themselves. But no one has yet asked the octopuses what they think, and what they might do about it. Yes, mountain in the sea. This was a fun one. I mean, if, if, uh, first of all, let's just start. Let's just start. First of all, uh, it's a wonderful exploration into human consciousness, uh, something we love so much about science fiction, um, exploring human consciousness through the foils of other types of consciousness, whether they're trying to emulate human consciousness or they're their own types like of consciousness. Like the androids, yep. Yeah, you have the android and then you have cephalopods and you have humans. Um, a, another mention that I really loved um, one of the things that stuck out the most for me from the text was the this um, entity called a point five, which is we're in a near future here, um, and the point fives are artificial intelligences that are uh, created to be in relationships with people, kind of like uh, Joy in Blade Runner twenty forty nine, if you've seen that, um, and it's that they're created to be just good enough as just real enough as humans to be in a convincing relationship, um, but also have no real needs. So it takes out the compromise portion of relationship, which I think a lot of people would argue is like what a relationship is growth and compromise <laughs> and, um, and a little bit of struggle. Um, and, and so these are created to kind of be, um, you know, the popcorn form of a relationship, which feels really uh, prescient to where we might be headed, how a lot of like technology and, and things are are sold to us in the modern world as entertainment um, and making making things easier for us and and taking all of the the challenge out. Um, so I love the point fives. Um, 
and the 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 near future world in general that Naylor has created is just super cool. I mean, you've got uh, another element that I loved is these autonomous trawling vessels. The sea is very overfished, but uh, and it's illegal to fish it, but people still do, obviously. And the um, the tra- we spend a lot of time on an autonomous trawler, which is controlled by an AI whose only goal is to like get fish and bring them in, but needs a lot of basically slave human labor. Um, Mm. So we see a possible interaction between an AI that's been charged with a very specific task at any cost versus the cost of human lives. Um, Loved that part. Um, And I also love that it's just a standalone novel. Um, it, It feels very, you know, start to finish. It gets its message across. Um, which is which is uh, kind of maybe a little more rare these days, wouldn't you say? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's easy to lean into the series. It happens more and more. So, you know, I'm I'm totally with you. When you've got the thing that's just like beautiful, self-contained, that's what a novel, you know, that's what a novel is to me. Exactly. And, and here, like Babel, we've got another uh, exploration into semiotics and language, um, particularly between cephalopods and humans. You know, what, how do you use symbols and words to represent a concept that someone else's qualia, you know, someone, another being's senses don't understand in the same way your senses understand them. They don't understand the universe in the same way. How do you, how do you make metaphor, um, to communicate when your, uh, fundamental, sensual experience is different. Um, and that is an excellent, it's done excellently here by Naylor, um, that exploration. Uh, so there's a lot of cool thoughts, um, and it's a pretty propelling story. You know, there's a lot of stakes and action with the anima trying to, um, find and study this, this cephalopod monster. That's basically, uh, a, a myth of Condau Island off of Vietnam. Um, and, uh, I really enjoyed the ride for sure. So you're going to love this book. If you enjoy an exploration of lots of different sci-fi tropes, you like marine biology or semiotics, and you want a standalone novel that raises lots of interesting questions to keep you thinking long after you've finished. That's what you're going to get here. Yeah. And you may not like it as much if you're expecting kind of a, you know, an accent action saga, like an on earth space opera. We couldn't think of a term for that. <laughs> Just a re- an action opera. I don't think anyone's ever used it like that. Um, <laughs> but with a lot of octopus characters, a la like Children of Ruin or um, the dolphins from Bryn's Uplift series, uh, the cephalopod mind is talked about a lot and is a really interesting foil and analog to humanity. But um, there aren't as many octopus characters as I thought there were going to be. So, yeah. you know, I, the you won't like it here is kind of just a small gripe um, with, <laughs> you know, from a great novel. Um, so For sure. we, we hope you get to read in some of these. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we'll find out who wins here in um, just a little over a week. The actual Nebula Award, you know, winner will be announced. And then the Hugo nominees are coming out soon. We're going to read all those too. Um, and, uh, and tell you all about those. You can pick your, your, your favorites to read from 2022. And, uh, yeah, we're just excited to get into, to, uh, get into award season here and really look back at, at all the great fiction that, that came to us in 2022. Yeah. And I'm going to steal it. Keep reading everybody. <laughs> Bye.